Polmap's Middle East Political Science Podcast, and I'm Mark Lynch. This week, we're joined by Jesse Wozniak of, the, of West Virginia University, speaking about his brand new book, Policing Iraq, Legitimacy, Democracy, and Empire in a Developing State. We'll also hear from Alexi Abrams of Harvard University about his new article, Hard Traveling, Unemployment and Road Infrastructure in the Shadow of Political Conflict. Finally, we'll hear from Adam Lichtenhald of Yale University and Justin Sean of the University of Virginia about their new article, The Consequences of Internal Displacement on Civil War Violence, Evidence from Syria. Thanks for joining us. This is the Paul Maps Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined now by Alexi Abrams, Harvard University, the author of a new article, Hard Traveling, Unemployment and Road Infrastructure in the Shadow of Political Conflict, which was just published in Political Science Research and Methods. Alexi, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Mark. So tell us about the article. What's, uh, what's the major argument and contribution? So at face value, it is a, uh, an impact evaluation study uh, looking at the effect of Israeli checkpoints and roadblocks deployed inside of the West Bank during the second Palestinian uprising, uh, looking, looking at the effect of those obstacles uh, on the Palestinian economy, uh, in particular, unemployment rates um, at, at, in, within different uh, Palestinian neighborhoods of the West Bank. So it's, it's basically looking at how unemployment rates changed uh, before the second Palestinian uprising uh, until after uh, in, in response to the deployment of these obstacles and the way that they blockaded uh, different Palestinian neighborhoods and interrupted the pattern of commuter uh, laborer uh, traffic within the West Bank. Um, this, the study, uh, I think my inspiration for it actually um, was uh, due to my own firsthand experience in the West Bank uh, in the summer of 2007. It was my first visit to the to Palestine and to the Middle East itself. And uh, it was in the auspices of, a, of an Arabic immersion program. And I actually would walk to a Palestinian farm uh, uh, to, to volunteer my, my services um, in the fields. And I used to have to pass through various Israeli checkpoints um, where my uh, identification would be checked. And then uh, in fact, to reach this farm, I had to walk along a path to a Palestinian village. And there was a huge boulder uh, on the path that had been placed by an Israeli bulldozer. And it prevented commuter traffic from, uh, from, from going from the village to the highway and, and back. So I was kind of uh, intimately and in a first person way kind of uh, aware of the effect of these obstacles. Um, and later on, I discovered that the United Nations had done a great job of documenting the exact geolocations uh, to which these obstacles had been deployed during the second Palestinian uprising. Um, so obtaining that time series of, uh, of United Nations maps was a first key uh, point in being able to, uh, to analyze this problem. Um, and then later on gaining access to Palestinian census data to be able to measure unemployment at the neighborhood level. And finally, uh, nighttime lights imagery in order to be able to uh, show the distribution of economic activity in the West Bank. And uh, the, main, the main finding of the paper uh, was this surprising spatio-distributional impact. I, I came into the paper thinking that I was gonna find a level impact 
show that Israeli obstacles had definitely reduced Palestinian employment or had this negative economic impact. And in fact, other studies have found something to that effect. Uh, but this was one of those cases where actually theory uh, inspired empirics uh, and, and ultimately led to a different finding. Uh, I realized that there should be distributional impacts in which obstacles prevent some laborers from reaching their jobs. And so they might be more likely to lose those jobs, but then other laborers uh, can step in and fill the job vacancies uh, left vacant by those other laborers. And so there's, there's winners and losers. Um, and, and these winners and losers come from different neighborhoods. So some neighborhoods are impoverished uh, and remotified by these obstacles while other neighbors, uh, neighborhoods actually reap the benefits. So in order, to, in order to do this, you really needed to collect a, a tremendous amount of very finely grained data. Uh, tell us a little bit, uh, you, you mentioned the sources uh, already, but tell us a little bit about how you used them and how they allowed you to get traction on uh, this economic differential impact. Right, thanks. So there were several angles on this. So first of all, these UN maps uh, showing the location of obstacles along the West Bank's internal road network. Uh, those maps were excellent. However, the United Nations, uh, at the time at least, was unwilling to share the actual uh, geographic information systems data. So what I had to work with was a series of PDFs uh, mm -hmm. that literally showed the image of these maps. And then I had to learn how to georeference those maps back into GIS and then digitize uh, by hand uh, each of the locations of these obstacles along the West Bank's internal road network. So that was the first huge um, step towards the project. Then uh, I needed to negotiate access to Palestinian census data. Census data was available at the uh, sort of national level, but not disaggregated down to the neighborhood. Right. Uh, I had to negotiate access to those data. And in the end, uh, thanks in part to the help of Berset University, I was able to gain access, but only on site, on premise. So I would go and sit at a kind of a very old, outdated computer in the Palestinian Central Bureau of Statistics library. And I would try to crunch out uh, the analysis there with no internet connection because, of course, they had to. Uh, protect the data from being exfiltrated. Right. Um, and so that, that was the second aspect of it. And then uh, to get a proper sense of the economic uh, distribution of economic activity prior to the uprising, um, in order to understand where laborers were likely trying to travel to, which, which towns they were likely trying to travel to, I had to, uh, I had to come up with, I had to be sort of innovative because there was not um, GDP data uh, disaggregated at that level, as there rarely is in uh, in um, uh, in developing countries. And so, uh, what I actually used there was nighttime light satellite imagery, um, which I think many other scholars have now recognized as a valuable proxy for economic activity. However, in the West Bank, because the spatial scale is so small, there was a particular technical issue with the satellite imagery, which is that. Uh, blurring in the imagery itself was causing light from uh, Israeli neighborhoods or settlements to bleed onto Palestinian neighborhoods, which would then cause me to overestimate their economic vibrancy. Um, and so that issue was a separate whole problem that had to be solved 
en route to finishing this paper. And that itself became another whole paper, another whole contribution uh, published in uh, remote sensing environment. That's, that's incredible. Okay, so then um, let's talk a little bit about the findings then. Uh, so you said that there's this differential impact. Walk us through that a little bit. Which neighborhoods benefited, which ones suffered? Right, so essentially you have some core commercial areas like Ramallah, Nablus, Janin, Betlehem uh, al-Khalil, and then you have outlying villages uh, Palestinians tend to live, unless they're forcibly uh, um, expelled, they tend to live in uh, the town of their birth and remain in, in contact with their family network, uh, their hamule, and then they, they commute to their place of work and then they come home, uh, you know, in the evening or on the weekends or as it may be. And so uh, those towns that are not themselves destinations that are not themselves commercial centers, but are essentially labor sending, labor supplying neighborhoods. Those ones were particularly vulnerable uh, when obstacles were deployed. Um, whereas the receiving neighborhoods, the, uh, especially the more, the more central neighborhoods, uh, they, uh, they could draw from their pre-existing pool of, of unemployed labor to kind of compensate for the, uh, for the loss of these commuters. And this dynamic is not something that is properly theorized within the field of urban economics. So urban economics, the, the theories of, of uh, the labor market in urban, in urban economics comes from um, advanced capitalist economies, uh, and in particular, the spatial mismatch puzzle um, that was first identified in the 1960s uh, which tried to explain the unemployment of uh, high unemployment rates in certain neighborhoods in American cities. In particular, they were minority neighborhoods in, in inner cities, uh, where high unemployment levels were 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 observed, which was puzzling because the overall metropolitan economy was quite robust. Why was this neighborhood in particular suffering high unemployment? And uh, in particular, out in the suburbs, there were often lots of job vacancies in strip malls or shopping malls. And these laborers downtown could surely fill those job vacancies, uh, but for the fact that it's uh, hard to travel um, within, uh, within the city due to you know, various reasons, um, lack of public transit infrastructure and so on. And so the, the, the policy takeaway from that was, well, if you can just connect these laborers to these job vacancies by improving the internal metropolitan commuter infrastructure, then you should be able to solve the unemployment problem. By contrast, in the Middle East, what you have is really depression economy level uh, levels of unemployment. So in the West Bank, even before these checkpoints were deployed, unemployment was already something like 20%. And that's actually a conservative estimate. So you have lots of unemployed people, both downtown and out in the neighborhoods. And so in that kind of a situation, Yes, obstacles prevent some laborers from getting to work, but then there's just there are just many uh, many others that an employer can draw from to replace the absentee uh, commuter. And so, in a sense, the fact that the economy is already suffering high unemployment rates makes it somewhat um, kind of attenuates the influence of uh, the commuter infrastructure. 
whether whether for whether whether if the if the obstacles are being deployed, it tends to have this attenuated net effect because of the um, because some people lose but some people win. Um, and then likewise, if you remove the obstacles, or if you pave roads, or if you uh, conduct the kind of infrastructure interventions that the World Bank and USAID and other international development organizations uh, often try to implement in various countries, the effect is, is going to tend to be attenuated because of the already high prevailing level of unemployment. And that high level, that high prevailing level of unemployment is itself, of course, uh, uh, the result of the political context. And there's many political scientists from, from Melanie Kamet to Isaac Dewan to uh, Bob Springborg who have written about how the political situations in the Middle East, whether it's crummy capitalism, whether it's civil war, whether it's a military blockade or occupation, uh, how these, these political equilibria importantly predetermine the economic outcomes. And so I think the big takeaway for me uh, on the on the end of, at, at the end of the paper was just that uh, that the economic problems that you see in the Middle East are often symptomatic of political problems, and if you're unwilling to address those political problems, you have a very limited scope to to ameliorate those economic problems. Yeah, which and that makes perfect sense from a political scientist perspective. Um, but the, uh, on the Palestinian case, uh, specifically then, you know, what, I guess, last question would be then, how do you assess then, you know, what follows from this uh, finding of differential impact rather than this kind of expectation of there simply being aggregate negative effects? What do you do with information like that? So it's, um, it's, it's a tricky question. So, I mean, there, there's takeaways on, on several different levels. So there's, there's the idea that the occupation divides Palestinians. I think advocates, sympathizers with the uh, Palestinian struggle often prefer the narrative of a kind of a unified uh, victimhood. We're all in this together. We are all losers as a result of this occupation, as a result of this political status quo. We need to work together to change it. And that, uh, that obscures the fact that actually there are winners and losers. There always have been, not only in this occupation, but in imperial occupations before. Uh, and so occupation divides Palestinians as much as it um, unites them in a common sense of suffering. And you could see that even in the, in the uh, vocabulary uh, Ramallahites would sometimes refer to these commuters coming in from outlying territories uh, in a derogatory manner because um, they were upset that they were having that, that these folks were coming in and bidding down wages and competing for the jobs. So there's that aspect of it. And then for the for us researchers, I think what was what the paper pointed to, but what was also a point of frustration, was the way in which different literatures were not talking to each other. And you know, the paper tries to make the political economy literature of the Middle East and the urban economics literature um, talk to each other. And it's probably, I think it's the only paper that, that quotes both literatures and tries to 
put them into tension with each other. But at some level, if you think that political equilibria predetermine economic equilibria in the Middle East, shouldn't that mean that all of the kind of technocratic development, uh, marginalist interventions that the World Bank or USAID or other organizations do, shouldn't that mean that they have limited scope? And indeed, even researchers within certain offices of the World Bank believe, very much believe this thesis that the, that the Middle East will move forward economically when corruption is addressed, when uh, crony capitalism is addressed, uh, when authoritarian market meddling is addressed. And somehow those researchers are, are able to adopt that point of view and yet the international development community continues to sort of just press ahead uh, as if, you know, as if that were, as if, as if that literature did not exist, as if those conclusions had not been reached. I don't know if that answers your question. It, it does in the sense that, um, I, that policies that you think are gonna work maybe won't help as much as you, as you think. Yeah, I think it's just, it was kind of sad and frustrating that it felt like at some level, different communities within academia had just kind of quietly agreed to disagree. And, uh, and so they weren't, these, these literatures weren't talking to each other. Um, and yet they were, they had very different assumptions about the world and about what would be necessary to change it. Um, and I think, you know, I guess if there's, a, if there's one kind of takeaway, it's that we should do more of that. We should do more cross-departmental, cross-literature uh, socializing, and, and, and we, should, we should put our different assumptions in tension with each other and, and, and dispute them and, you know, try to arrive at a deeper um, uh, thesis or synthesis, I should say. Well, great. We've been speaking with Alexei Abrams of Harvard University about his article, Hard Traveling, Unemployment and Road Infrastructure in the Shadow of Political Conflict. Alexei, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much, Mark. This is the POMAP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined now by Adam Lichtenheld of Yale University. He's the author, along with Justin Sean of U University of Virginia, of a new article, The Consequences of Internal Displacement on Civil War Violence, Evidence from Syria, which was just published in Political Geography. Uh, Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mark. So tell us about this article. Yeah, so in this article, we explore the consequences of wartime displacement, specifically internal displacement, on violence against civilians, focusing on Syria. And what really motivated us to write this paper is we know a lot about violence, how violence triggers displacement, and we know some about how displacement, particularly cross-border refugee flows, can spread conflict by you know, inciting violence between displaced and host populations. But we know much less about how internal displacement affects conflict dynamics, which I think is particularly important because in armed conflicts today, far more people tend to be displaced within their countries than outside of them as, as refugees. So what we argue, what our main contribution is that in order to understand the effects of internal displacement on conflict, we need to focus and understand how armed actors respond to population movements. And we find that governments and rebel forces actually respond to population movements in different ways, which then shapes their use of violence against civilians. So let's talk that through a little bit then. So um, what is the, what's the major difference? So it really comes down to the asymmetric nature of civil war. So rebels possess a disadvantage in resources. They tend to be weaker than governments. 
whereas governments have an advantage in information sorry, governments have a disadvantage in information because they don't know where rebels are. Rebels are much more embedded in the population. They're trying to evade the much stronger state army. So we find that responses of state actors are driven by the need then to identify insurgents and their civilian supporters. And therefore it depends on how much information they have on where IDPs are coming from and where they're resettling because they're using that as an indicator of whether people might be on the side of the rebels or on the side of the government. Right. So in contrast, we find that responses to displacement by rebels are driven by their need to monitor and control civilian movements. And the logic there is that because rebels possess a disadvantage in resources compared to state actors, they really rely on the civilian population just to shelter their fighters and provide material and logistical support. But in order to establish control, they need to not only monopolize the use of force, but also monopolize what, what the sociologist John Torpy has called the legitimate means of movement within an area. And so they primarily seek to monitor and control people's movements through the use of checkpoints. And so they're trying to funnel, displace people into their territories and discourage civilians from leaving. And so that means that it's in transit locations that are going to become very violent because it's places where where rebels uh, tend to set up checkpoints. So this is a story about information and legibility. Correct. So let's talk about the regime uh, for a little bit now. So you talk about um, uh, how they, for example, they see people fleeing, going to Idlib province. They then assume that uh, those are people who sympathize with rebels. Is that basically the logic? Yeah, so it's called, and I've developed this actually in my broader work, particularly my dissertation work, um, I call it guilt by location. Okay. So it's this idea that, you know, information is a key resource in civil wars, but because state actors in particular tend not to have enough of it, they're using simplifying heuristics or usually ascriptive clues, right, to determine who might be with the rebels and who might be an innocent civilian. And there's been a lot of focus in the literature on the use of things like ethnic identity or religious affiliation or just identity characteristics as a heuristic. Whereas I argue that armed groups may also use profiling along spatial lines. So where people are located, whether they leave, where they move to, not just their ethnic or religious identities to make inferences about their allegiances and affiliations. So it means that where people are from, when they left and where they elect to go can serve as a signal to these, to these uh, government forces of which side they're potentially on. And then for the armed groups, what are they trying to understand? Well, they're just really trying to get a bead on, you know, who can they target with violence, um, right? They would prefer to target uh, individuals selectively. They would prefer to know who is actually a rebel fighter or who is providing information to rebels about where state actors are. But typically because of the fog of war, um, because of the, the acute you know, time and, and resource pressures that they're under, they just don't have the kind of fine-grained information they want. And so they have to use informational shortcuts. And we know that they use all kinds of informational shortcuts, right? Um, how certain people look, what their names are, again, what their identities are. But again, simply, simply where one is or where they, where they move to is, is another way, we argue, that um, they can make those inferences. So you make some, uh, some pretty novel uh, methodological moves here. Tell us a little bit about the data you're drawing on and, uh, and how you went about analyzing it. 
Yeah, so we draw on new subnational data on violence displacement, and uh, we also use some data on territorial control. And I think the real kind of methodological innovation of the article is we use network analysis mm -hmm. to incorporate uh, really a broader set of displacement flow characteristics, rather than just looking at measures of inflows and outflows of internally displaced persons from particular territories. And so we use internal displacement data at the province level uh, that we collected from UNOCHA, but then we develop these measures that capture the concentration of displacement flow networks around specific locations and the degree to which people travel through a location. So our two kind of main measures that we develop, the first is uh, what's kind of called betweenness, and it measures the number of people who travel through a province to or from two other provinces. Mm -hmm. So essentially indicates whether a province is a transit hub, which we use as a proxy to indicate where armed groups, particularly rebels, are likely to place checkpoints. And then as a separate measure, we use, it's called local clustering, which indicates the extent to which movements to, through, and from a province is limited to a small number of provinces or a large number of provinces. So for example, if Idlib province and Syria only sends and receives displaced people from Aleppo and Hama province, then local clustering would be high. If, however, Idlib sends and receives displaced populations from every other province in the country, then local clustering would be low. So it's a really good indicator of how legible IDP flows are, how complex they are, and therefore whether different armed actors can actually identify with re how reliably they can identify wh where people are coming from and where they're moving to. And so when you have uh, the more uh, local clustering, that tends to attract what kind of violence? That tends to, to, so our argument is that if our hypothesis is that governments should employ more violence against civilians when they have more information about um, IDP flows. And so local clustering indicates, the higher local clustering indicator is, it, again, indicates the more legibility that, that, that government forces will have, um, will have about those movements. So we find that there is a very strong relationship between how high local clustering is and the number of government killings in a province month. So the higher local clustering, the higher number of government killings. So walk us through then uh, what other findings, what, what are the other findings then um, uh, from the empirical analysis? So then the other major finding, um, it's important to note that this, this relationship between local clustering civilian killings only applies to government forces. We right. do not find the same relationship with killings by rebel forces. What we find to be correlated with killings by rebel forces is what I referred to as betweenness, right. which is basically the more... IDPs you have moving through a, a uh, transit site, the, the higher, the, the, the more people that rebels, the more people that rebels kills, kill, which reflects the fact that there's a lot of violence we think going on um, at checkpoints and as a result of rebels trying to exert control over population movements. And as I said before, divert displaced people into their territories and try to restrict them from leaving their territories. It's more complicated for the rebel groups because from the government's point of view, all, all the potential opposition forces are the same, but from the rebels, they need to figure out not only if they're pro-government, but also if they're affiliated with some other armed group who might be hostile. 
That's exactly right. And there's a much larger, I think, trade-off for rebels because in most conflicts, and Syria included, governments usually continue to benefit from having controlling more territory, having a higher percentage of the population remaining in their territory, and they're not as resource starved as rebels. Whereas rebels really need people partly to portray legitimacy as an alternative governing force, but also that they can, so they can recruit members to fight on their behalf. They can extract taxes and other material benefits from them. And so they, they do want to discern who might be loyal or who not be loyal, but to some extent, they also just need civilians. And so for them, it's not just a matter of, um, you know, attracting people into their territory, but also trying to prevent them from leaving. Whereas state actors might not be, they might be a little bit more picky in terms of screening out uh, uh, certain members of the population because they don't have, in most cases, such acute resource needs to the level that rebels, that rebels do. So when, when you take this analysis then, uh, what are the implications of this for those who uh, study civil wars or for policy makers trying to, trying to respond to this IDP crisis? Well, I think more generally, when we're thinking about the impact of displacement on violence, it's not just a consequence of the militarization of displaced people or conflict between displaced and host communities. It's also shaped by how armed actors react to, interpret, and try to manage displacement flows. And while you know, scholars have found that more information about civilian behavior in wartime allows combatants to employ you know, selective violence, um, you know, we find that more information about displacement prompts armed groups, specifically pro-government groups, to use more collective violence. Right. So I think it really depends on the kind of information that armed groups have in terms of informing how they, how they use violence. And I think more broadly from both a scholarly and a policy standpoint, it really demonstrates this kind of logic of guilt by location. It reveals the extent to which, you know, fleeing or staying can be considered a political act with political consequences on the very dynamics of conflict itself, but even also after war ends. I mean, we've seen this in the case of ISIS and post-ISIS Iraq, right? Where there has been this assumption perceived by government authorities and other civilians that anybody who didn't flee and, and opted, quote unquote, to stay under ISIS rule was an ISIS collaborator and therefore was guilty simply because they stayed behind. And I think that really reflects this kind of guilt by physical association that we see um, that goes beyond just, you know, attributing guilt based on, on someone's, you know, ethnic or religious identity. But on that, it's interesting that one of the anomalies you found in your data, if I remember correctly, was that this didn't seem to hold in the, the Kurdish controlled areas which suggests that maybe that ethnic marker does give the information that's needed. It could be, it could be. That could also just be a kind of a quirk of the data. We just didn't have a whole lot of um, either killings or displacement in Kurdish areas for the time period we looked at compared to the rest of Syria. But it's also possible that the salience of ethnicity uh, by certain armed groups could kind of, yeah, mitigate this potential kind of guilt by location um, impact that we see. So where do you where do you think that this then takes the study of of, um, of civil war violence? Um, you know, now now that you've shown this, uh, you know, where does it take uh, the field? Well, I think it takes it in a couple areas. I think first and foremost, and Mark, you know this because I've harped on it for years. There needs to just be a greater, I think, focus on displacement, particularly in the conflict and civil war literature. 
for all of the ink that's been spilled on trying to understand the use of violence, particularly lethal violence in, in civil war and conflict studies, there's just been a lot less attention paid to displacement, even though far more people are displaced by conflicts than are killed by them, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it really requires that both from an academic and a, a policy standpoint, that we don't treat displacement as just some sort of haphazard humanitarian, purely humanitarian phenomenon, but that we see it as integral to the political and social and economic dynamics of the conflict itself. Um, you know, and I think that that can have implications for post-conflict peace building, for how we think about the politics of return of displaced populations, and you know, rather than just focusing on just kind of the humanitarian logistical challenges of, of dealing with or overcoming displacement. Well, great. We've been speaking with Adam Lichtenheld of Yale University about his article, co-author of Justin Sean, uh, Virginia, on the consequences of internal displacement on civil war violence. Uh, Adam, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thanks, Mark. This is the Paul Maps Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined on today's book segment by Jesse Wozniak of West Virginia University, author of the new book, Policing Iraq, Legitimacy, Democracy, and Empire in a Developing State, which was just published by the University of California Press. Uh, Jesse, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So tell us about Policing Iraq. Um, yeah, so I think the kind of easiest way to describe the book is to sort of talk about uh, the genesis of how this project started. Um, because I'd done um, a, a lot of work throughout grad school about the, the history of police forces, right? Like how they came to be, mm -hmm. how they came to be, you know, sort of shaped as they are, the decision-making and all that kind of stuff. Um, and when it came time to actually figure out a dissertation topic, lo, these many right. longer ago than I care to admit, um, I realized I didn't want to sit in like archives for several years reading old history stuff, even though that's interesting. Um, and, and so... I started to spitball, like, wouldn't it be interesting to see this process actually happen in person, like a police force that is being constructed to see how those decisions are made. Uh, and that, through a, a long series of coincidences, led me to uh, Iraq. And so the, the sort of genesis of the whole project was just this kind of question of, you know, essentially, the country was starting over more or less from scratch in a lot of ways. Um, one of the sort of anecdotes I always talk about is that by the time uh, coalition forces had established sort of any presence in Baghdad. Uh, every government ministry had been literally burnt to the ground. Right. So like not even just didn't exist on paper, like the buildings didn't exist, you know, nothing. And so um, it was just kind of amazing opportunity to see, well, what does it look like when you're essentially starting from scratch with a police force? How do they do that? Who, who wants to be a part of that? Um, what kind of knowledge are they drawing on? Who is making these decisions? Uh, and so through that, I've, I've, I've been um, back and forth to um, the Kurdistan region uh, of northern Iraq uh, uh, several times over the past decade. Uh, and spent a lot of time at uh, police training centers, uh, inside of precinct houses throughout the country, inside of courtrooms, uh, and really just, you know, as an ethnographer, we, we don't really have sort of, you know, hypotheses uh, or these kind of things, just really this guiding research question of how does a police force develop from scratch? Uh, it's sort of, I think, kind of one of the central findings from this project overall, and especially that I talk a lot about in the book, is the idea that they, there's really, obviously, at some point in time, been a decision made, uh, whether consciously or not. My guess is consciously, though I can't, don't necessarily have the data to prove that. 
Uh, but at some point in time, a decision was clearly made to favor the appearance of ability over the actual impartation of ability uh, in terms of the police force. And so one of the things that was most shocking to me uh, in spending time watching training sessions was how much time in these police training sessions is spent on formation marching. Uh, the average police training course for sort of uh, new recruits will be basic level police. Um, higher level police actually go through sort of a, a much more, they call it the college of police, much more in depth. But, but for most of the, the sort of basic recruits, people will be out there actually doing policing. Uh, it's, a, it's a nine week course. And of the courses I've observed, anywhere between four and seven of those weeks will be spent on formation marching, uh, which I feel is like kind of became sort of a metaphor for the reconstruction as a whole in that there was a large amount of work done in policing and, and in really the country beyond by coalition forces and, and this sort of um, uh, compliant government officials, for lack of a better term, uh, to sort of favor the idea of creating a, a facade of a nation on top of something that, that doesn't really function in that way. Uh, and so from there, it's sort of the, the big takeaway then is this idea of, it's also kind of the imperial project in, in, in practice, or, or as you see it, I mean, as the country has sort of been unmistakably given the design of a client state, but sort of carefully papered over with this facade of functioning uh, ability. So for example, if you were to be a, a visiting dignitary brought out to the police training center, well, you'd see just row after row of police marching in time, executing parade turns, and, and it would look like a, a pretty useful force. But if you had then actually ask any of these police officers sort of what the job entails, uh, none of these recruits have really any idea. Uh, and I, I think that's kind of a really a fitting metaphor for, for the U.S. experience in Iraq over these past 20 years as a whole, give or take. So yeah, there's, there's so there's two different strands of the book that that kind of inter intersect and interact in very interesting ways. One of them is the uh, the role of the United States and the coalition in trying to set up and train the police, and then the other is, uh, as you said, this kind of ethnographic approach from the bottom up of seeing how this actually plays out with these with these new recruits and across the uh, the, the force. Um, maybe we could talk about those uh, kind of in turn and, and see how they intersect with each other. So you start off the book and, and you're quite critical of the way that the coalition went about um, the reconstruction of the Iraqi state and of the Iraqi police force. So, um, so tell us a little bit about that and what you think was going on. I mean, yeah, yeah, very critical. <laughs> One, the, the sort of thing that stands out when you're talking about policing specifically is how much police were ignored uh, for so much of the the early days of the invasion, or I can't even really say early days, the first year to two years uh, of the occupation and, and how many consequences flow from that. I think one of the more sort of interesting, um, I mean, you know, if listeners of this podcast are, you know, understanding Middle East politics and stuff, they don't need me to explain, you know, sort of a, a lot of the arrogance that went into uh, sort of the, the invasion and occupation. But one of the ones that was most stands out to me in regards to policing was that the working assumption uh, of the Bush administration was that the police force under Saddam would just stay on duty and would continue to provide policing services. Um, and there was literally no plan for when that didn't happen, uh, which, you know, you could say hindsight is twenty twenty, but I, I think a lot of people might've been able to tell you 
beforehand that that would be likely what happens. Um, and so the country existed, you know, without a police force for a good year to two years, uh, but also without any sort of functioning government. And this is one of the ways where you see, for example, militias really step up and, and fill that role in a, in a sort of very devastating uh, uh, way. Um, but also just in general, it shows sort of the, the neglect of, of central state institutions, right? One of the sort of reasons I believe policing was, was so neglected was that because that would be something that might benefit the citizens of Iraq, but it definitely wouldn't benefit the coalition really in any material and obvious way. Uh, and so it was just sort of left uh, to, to nothingness. Um, and then even when uh, the police started to be taken seriously, the folks put in charge of policing were not any, not, had no experience in policing or experience in institution building. Uh, and, and so it was very clear that this was not seen, um, really not taken seriously, uh, not seen as something important. Uh, but then even when attention was given to it, uh, not sort of in the way that, that we might do it. And, and it's really telling because the United States has done this a lot. This was certainly not the first time we've tried to reconstruct a police force. Um, and even outside of direct experience, I mean, there's just voluminous literature on best practices, how to do this, pitfalls to avoid. Uh, and it's just pretty clear all of that was ignored uh, in, in favor of, uh, again, sort of at first simply ignoring the police and then uh, even when turning attention to them, it being much more important that people in charge of it um, subscribe to sort of that, that narrow Bushian view of sort of neoliberal politics than uh, any sort of understanding of police, security, domestic order, and that sort of thing. Yeah, you have that, uh, that nice line, uh, someone has to be the state. Yes, I, I think that's sort of my, I mean, so I'm a, I, I'm a Gramscian um, and, and one of the things that from the tradition of Gramsci really comes, right, is the idea that, you know, the, the state isn't just the, the government, right? It's not that simple, that the state is how you bring together legitimacy. The state is anything uh, that brings together the ability to either um, coerce uh, or convince people uh, to essentially to be part of society. And that, yeah, exactly, someone has to do this. Uh, that people need their physical needs met, they need security. Uh, and, and one of the parallels, I don't draw this as much in the book, but I, I have another pub where I talk about this, is you can draw a really simple parallel between the rise of militias in Iraq and the rise of gangs in um, the contemporary segregated ghetto in America. Because in both cases, it's where the you know, legitimate government has receded and does not provide the security or resources that people need there will inevitably be an alternate actor that steps in there because people need those things. And so I often compare, right? And, and it's also true in the sense that, you know, most people who live in gang neighborhoods don't care for the gangs, right? They're not happy they're there, um, but, but those gangs subsist because they're providing things that the, the government can or won't. It's the same thing with militias. People don't like these militias, uh, but if the militia brings you food to eat, drinkable water, makes it so you can walk around your neighborhood without fear of death at any moment, right? you're gonna begrudgingly accept that regardless of your feeling on their politics or organization. And one of the things which is interesting there is that the police are often one of the major points of contact between ordinary citizens and the state. So it's not a minor part of this kind of performance of statehood. Right, I mean, I, to me, the reason I, I, I view everything through this policing lens isn't just because I'm a criminologist, but I, I argue that they're really the most concrete experience of government for most people. Um, I mean both in that sort of bare sense of like 
they, they can literally hit you with a stick if you don't do what they say, right? Uh, but also in that greater sense of, I, I can't really think of any other government institution that's nearly as visible uh, or makes nearly as much contact or as, or as nearly as directly threatening. Uh, and so that's sort of the, the really underlying thesis of the entire book or really my whole academic career uh, is that how a police force is designed and, and, and maintained to act will tell you far more about what that government is trying to do than will anything like its constitution or the laws on paper, right, or these sorts of things. In fact, one of my favorite Iraqi sayings translates basically to laws are ink on paper, right? The idea being that like a, a law means nothing uh, until it is enforced and how it is enforced. Uh, and the police obviously are, are then very central to that. Uh, and so, I, yeah, and so this idea that, that um, that's really where the rubber meets the road in terms of government. And so if, uh, sort of my argument is if you can understand the police force, you can understand what that state is trying to do. Well, why don't we go to um, uh, the kind of the concrete now? Um, so you spent your time in Sulaymaniya and you're researching the police force. Tell us about the research and some of the things that you observed. Yeah, so I, you know, it's been many years since now, but I, I mostly based out of Sulaymaniya, though I, I go all throughout the KRG. So I'd be over in Erbil uh, and um, Duhok and, and definitely out through the sort of more rural or what they call tribal areas. Um, that, and you see a really interesting contrast there um, because Iraq is like a, a number of countries that it's sort of this similar state where the, the government really only exists in major urban centers. Uh, and, and outside of that, uh, the government doesn't really particularly exist in any sort of concrete way. Um, and so, yeah, so I spent a lot of time at uh, police training centers. There's a, the Suleimania Lee Police Academy, uh, a couple of kilometers outside of Suli has trained approximately a fifth of all police officers in the nation of Iraq. Uh, and they also have a, a, a major courthouse there uh, as, as well as court of appeals. Uh, and then obviously a large policing presence. And so, you know, as an ethnographer, my time is really just sort of spent embedding in all of this. Um, I, I also do formal interviews. I believe I've interviewed somewhere north of a hundred people by now um, from, you know, sort of police to judges and lawyers and, and basically everyone within the criminal justice system. Uh, but I think the real value in the work is just the amount of actually watching this happen day by day. Um, and like, like one anecdote I always use is, um, you know, policing is really sort of a job of last resort for most people there. Uh, policing is, is not a job you aspired to, is not a job you grew up dreaming of. It's a job you took because the unemployment rate is still about 40% and they'll take basically anyone. Um, and so a lot of people treat the job in the same way that you treat any other sort of menial low paying job, right? Which is sort of putting in the least amount of work required to not get fired. Uh, and, and from the outside, I think a lot of people get struck by that. I think like, well, that, that's you know crazy. Policing is such an important job. How could people be so lax about it? Um, but when you see things like the training center, you have to sit literally on a concrete slab in the middle of the desert underneath the hot sun, listening to lectures all day. Uh, or, you know, at a station house where you might have power for a couple hours every day. Um, I was at one station house where the, uh, uh, the director of the station explained to me they have enough money for um, one liter of fuel a week. So basically, if any crime happens after the first day of the week, they take taxis to the crime scene, right? And, and this sort of way in which things are, are radically under-resourced and that kind of thing, when you're actually embedded in it, then it makes all the sense in the world. You're like, well, yeah, I wouldn't try very hard at this job either, right? Uh, and, and so a lot of it's just been that sort of 
being embedded to see the day-to-day -day reality uh, of how this actually looks and how it plays out. The, the descriptions of the actual trainings are, are kind of shocking um, in terms of what they're being taught and what they're not being taught. Not a lot of uh, you're, not a lot of emphasis on things like solving crimes or or dealing with protesters. Yeah, and, and you see that play out. I mean, one of my favorite quotes from all the many interviews I've done that I always remember uh, is I, I was talking to a young recruit who is just, I think in the last week or two of training, just about to graduate. Uh, and I asked him, you know, what he thought the limitations of the training process were. And he went on for quite a while, but he said, at one point he said, you know, I'm training to be a traffic police officer, but I haven't learned anything about laws, anything about how to talk to people. Uh, and it was just, and he was rattling off this list of all the sort of stuff that you think like, yeah, that would be kind of kind of day one, wouldn't it? Um, in, in a sort of perfect world. Uh, and that's where I get at this sort of the idea of trying to create this facade of legitimacy over um, a non-existent one and that so much of the training process is about these self-presentational matters um, to essentially make police look capable uh, and, and look like a legitimate force uh, actually done to the detriment of, of those sort of ideas or knowledge or even tactics uh, that actually would build uh, legitimacy or actually would build effectiveness. Now you also have a, a an argument in there about how what training they do get uh, kind of blends into kind of counterterrorism type of activities and military type of activities more than what you might expect from a civilian police force. Yeah, very much. One of when I was talking about the many ways in which. Um, the U.S. ignored its own history in police reconstruction. One of the really unprecedented things about the reconstruction of the Iraqi police force is that it was, for reasons that have still never been explained publicly, um, it was placed under the auspices of the Department of Defense. Uh, normally, whenever we do this, there's a, a joint program of the Departments of Justice and State, and I, I'm blanking on its name off the top of my head, um, but it, it's the kind of place where you'd expect that to be housed, right? A state institution that deals with justice um, but this was instead placed under the DOD. And not terribly surprising, the DOD did what the DOD does, right? It, it trains soldiers. Um, and and it, in fact, the only two practical things that police are trained on in their basic training program um, that can even be generously labeled police work are sweeping a car and sweeping a house for militants. Uh, and that's really much more the purview of, uh, of the military. And in fact, it's quite ironic given that, um, you know, both historically uh, in the development of Western policing, the separation of police from the military is seen as kind of like a watershed moment in, in democratic rights in the democratic state. Uh, and even in contemporary times, we often use that as a measure of democracy, how divorced the police are from the military. So to ignore all of that, instead house the police under the military and train them as if they're military, um, not only again sort of flies in the face of all our traditions and scholarship, but I also think again speaks a lot to that kind of uh, imperial idea, right? That if um, if a country was going to be a fully formed democracy, yet yes, it would need a well-trained police department. But if a country is going to be a hopefully compliant client state, well, then it would be a lot more useful to have a force that is able to root out subversives and and uh, put down efforts. Maybe not be so much worried about the day-to-day -day functioning of a society. Yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting corollary. Um, now, you were there for um, a, a significant part of your field research overlaps with the Islamic State experience and the kind of unique pressures that that puts on, uh, on, on Kurdish society. Yeah, I mean, I think the rise of IS really speaks to uh, 
you know, it's, it's one of those really, um, one of the times you hate to be right. Because uh, I remember b- before the Islamic State exploded on this, the scene, I had, I had published something where the end line was something like, you know, on, until the government comes in and fills this void, someone else is going to do it. And they're going to have ulterior motives. Uh, and it's one of those times where like, I'm very depressed that my prediction came out to be correct. Um, but this is that, that again, that larger point, the Gramscian point about the state is that, like I said, outside of major urban centers, there is effectively no government. Um, and this is very much the case that even when I spoke to police officers out in the more rural areas, people refer to as tribal areas, um, I remember a quote from one officer saying that, you know, oh, oh nobody reports crimes to us. They're, they're going to take it to the tribe 90% of the time. They're going to have to be really desperate for something before they bring it to us. Uh, and if people really don't respect the existence of a government um, and that that is something that provides the sort of amazingly fertile grounds for the growth of these kind of organizations that are willing to fill that governmental vacuum. Uh, and this is kind of also one of the sort of big um, you know, answers to the so what question of the book, right? So like, so what? They're not designing a very good police force. It's not very effective. Like, why do we care? Well, that's one of the central reasons, right? The, a legitimate police force is, is central to the concept of a legitimate democratic state. Uh, and, and so not only is the police force itself not seen as legitimate, but its inability, I, I argue, harms the overall legitimacy of the government. Uh, and, and with people not giving the legitimacy of the government, there's no reason for them to, to give allegiance or loyalty uh, to these kind of things or participate in these processes, thus making it incredibly fertile grounds for, for these sort of violent non-state actors who can exploit that um, by providing the things the government does not. Yeah, well, in terms of, uh, in terms of those grievances and the like, uh, you, you have an extended discussion of the uh, quite brutal, and uh, I guess brutal is a good word for it, uh, ways in which the police crack down on protests in Soleimani and kind of more broadly as part of a, a broader Iraqi phenomenon in terms of how they dealt with the, the protests over the last few years. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those moments where um, that also, I think, kind of answers the so what question I was just making that uh, it, it's so clear that there is no understanding of sort of really basic concepts of crowd control, let alone concepts of, you know, excuse me, um, you know, public redress of, of political grievances in these sort of more high-minded democratic things. And so not terribly surprising, uh, the police have been trained uh, in nothing about democracy, but only in the use of force. So they, they turn to the use of force. Uh, and the sort of brutal repression of, of demonstrations can be tied, I think, really to sort of both central theses of the book in that there's a direct tie to the, the sort of poverty of the training program in that, well, how else would you expect people who have been given no training to act in such a situation? Um, but also sort of to that, that kind of idea of imperialism and client states and that sort of thing. And that, again, um, the, the police treated it much like the army used to treat riots, right? Like the very reason we developed domestic police forces in the first place, one of the central causes in those, at least in, in Western Europe, was how agitated people were at the use of military in response to major public order situations. Uh, and that was one of the sort of genesis uh, of, of policing, at least within Western democracies. And so it's so ironic uh, that here, you know, in, in what was supposed to be an attempt to export Western style democracy to, to a nation, uh, we were in fact directly reproducing 
the very circumstances that led to uh, the, the development of, uh, of democratic non-military police forces in the first place. Now, kind of along those lines, you also talk a bit about how these police forces engage with uh, kind of the human rights uh, clauses in the Constitution and um, their attitudes towards torture and some of those other types of things, which kind of go along with how you were just describing it in many ways. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it, it's interesting that in, in talking to police officers, there's clearly a message that human rights are important. The number of times people referenced human rights articles, our respect for human rights, you know, before police didn't do this, but now we respect human rights, right? It was a constant refrain from everyone I spoke to, usually brought up by them long before I broached the subject. To differentiate but, themselves from Saddam's police. Very much, yes. Uh, and even from other police throughout the region. Um, but then when you would press them a little bit on that to ask sort of what it means in reality for these rights to exist, uh, then the answers got much less uniform uh, in the sense that obviously it, it was then sort of people kind of grasping at their own understanding of it. Uh, and so it, it very much part and parcel of this idea of kind of um, uh, a training that focuses much more on appearance than on substance. Everyone can tell you how important human rights are and how it's great that we now have human rights and we respect human rights, but very few could tell you what that actually means. Um, and in fact, it was interesting. One of the first times I was there was during, you know, the, the Middle East spring. It's there are these major demonstrations in Suli city center every day. Uh, and, and the things people would say in interviews, like, ah, see, now we respect human rights. We would never attack the crowd. We would never use weapons. And I mean, I would literally then leave the police academy, go downtown and watch in, in some instances, some of the same people I actually just been interviewing doing exactly those things. They said, well, we don't do now because we respect human rights. Uh, and again, it's one of those things where I also want to make it clear that this is not really, uh, this is not really a criticism of the police force, right? It's, it's more a criticism of what else would you expect someone with no training uh, and no education on this particular issue to react like? Uh, I, I think the sort of uh, more pertinent question would be how, how did anyone expect it would it turn out like this given the way the process went? Well, maybe that's a, a good direction to go then in terms of trying to think through the implications of, uh, of, of your experience in Iraq and, and your analysis of the police force. Um, when you look at this and, uh, you know, and try and think through the broader lessons, you know, what, what do you think is the main takeaway or the main takeaways uh, from your research for thinking about state building and uh, international trainings and uh, state legitimacy? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think really one of the biggest, um, I guess, failures for lack of a better word was how much it was assumed uh, that the government would be seen as legitimate, right? Like how much it was treated by everyone in this process as just taken for granted that, oh, people will view the government as legitimate. They'll view the government as great. They'll view themselves as part of the government. They'll view themselves as part of this nation. Um, whereas that's something that needs to be painstakingly built over time, right? And that is, um, whether it's a story about IS or whether it's a story about the continuing influence of clans and tribes so much more than the legitimate government, right? It's that there's never been any reason why anyone in that country should give their loyalty uh, or even their compliance to this new government. Uh, it, 
provides very little for them. Uh, it doesn't keep them safe. It doesn't keep the electricity on. It doesn't give them clean water, right? Uh, but everything was done with this assumption that, oh, we build this government, it'll instantly be legitimate. Um, and that's why I, I keep coming back to the, the sort of Gramscian perspective, right? That you have to establish that legitimacy before you can establish a government. It doesn't go the other way around. You can't build a government and then try to make uh, legitimacy for it. And so it's hard because a lot of times people want to take away of like, oh, what should we have done differently? Um, and and it, it's a, a bummer, but there, there isn't. There isn't a thing we should have done differently. The entire concept of how you might do this process would have to be radically different to be successful. Um, because there's just, uh, until you have a government that, that provides material needs and security, the people aren't even gonna entertain the idea of viewing that as legitimate, let alone having the sort of instantaneous legitimacy that consciously or not, obviously everyone in charge of this process was banking on. Well, especially because you, know, you might've thought that the Kurdish areas had a big advantage over Baghdad in terms of a built-in legitimacy. Um, and uh, also not having that sectarian divide that mm -hmm. uh, that that plagues uh, the the central government in Baghdad. Um, do you think there's anything unique about the Kurdish experience here, or is this something which you see as generic to Iraq or to kind of post, you know, post invasion situations in general? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, a little bit of both, as is always the boring academic answer. But I, I mean. Partially because one thing I keep coming back to whenever I, I do these criticisms is that, yeah, all my work is confined to the Kurdish region. And so in, in some ways that could be viewed as a weakness. I don't, I spent extremely little time in, in the rest of the nation. Um, but I, I actually argue that, well, really that's a strength and that if we're seeing these problems in Kurdistan, I guarantee they're worse everywhere else, right? If we're seeing these same kind of issues, uh, everything from the sort of basic competency of the training program up to these bigger picture questions of, of government legitimacy, if you're seeing those problems in the part of the country that's seen as a success, in the part of the country that is much more stable, has much less violence, much more economically stable, right? If you're seeing all those problems there, guarantee they're, they're only exacerbated by the conditions elsewhere. Uh, and so, but even within that, right, even within the KRG, which had, you know, it, its own government sort of established since 91, um, but then definitely much more established since 2003, uh, even there, a number of people don't necessarily view themselves as part of that state, right? They definitely view themselves as Kurdish and, and maybe part of the larger Kurdish state, including uh, Kurds from other nations, but don't see themselves as, as necessarily part of Kurdistan uh, or the KRG, let alone the, the greater nation of Iraq. Uh, and, and I think that's sort of, again, this idea of um, there really isn't any reason for them to. Uh, this state isn't filling the roles that you would hope of a democratic state or, or uh, not hope that, that you need a democratic state to fill to, to exist. Uh, and so you're not seeing that kind of uh, legitimacy or, or even sort of basic compliance. Well, great. We've been speaking with uh, Jesse Wozniak of West Virginia University about his new book, Policing Iraq. Uh, Jesse, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me.